You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. If you don't have a Bible, please uh, take one from the pew in front of you. There's actually some gift Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible at all, take one of those Bibles home with you. We want to equip you with the Word of God. Also, if you receive the bulletin, inside that bulletin there's an insert, and there are notes that you can fill in, uh, blanks to fill in as we go along with the sermon this morning. I want to encourage you. Fill those blanks in, uh, and then keep that insert with you so you can better retain today's message. Carry Easter along with you, and then when you study the book of Romans, uh, you'll have those notes. Also, if you have a smartphone and you've downloaded the Bible app by YouVersion, the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and there under that event title... You'll find all the scripture references today, all the notes, the quotes, and the references. You can save that on your phone, and you can uh, use that for later use as well. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. I want to preach to you a message I've entitled, The Proof of Your Love. The Proof of Your Love. You may have come in this Easter morning hating yourself. You feel depressed and lonely. Waves of anxiety are crashing on your soul. You fear tomorrow's uncertainties. People have bullied you, betrayed you, and turned you down. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your children are in rebellion. Layoffs are happening at your work. Your business is going under. Your home is being foreclosed. Your car is being repossessed. You've received a life-threatening diagnosis or maybe you're reeling from the loss of a loved one. Whether you acknowledge it or not, deep in your soul there is an ulcer, a stinging, nagging question. God, do you really love me? God, do you really love me? Today we're studying a passage from the Apostle Paul. For Christ, Paul was whipped five times and was beaten three times. On missionary journeys, he was shipwrecked three times. He worked through sleepless nights without food and in the cold without clothing. And now Paul states what he has discovered about God's love. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verse 31. 
What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Paul was convinced, despite his circumstances, that God was for him and that God loved Paul. He had proved his love for Paul once and for all. My question to you this Easter morning is do you know how God proves His love for you? Do you know how God has proved His love for you? I want to draw your attention as Paul does first to the first part to answering that question of how we know God loves us. And the first part that Paul draws our attention to is to the past work of Christ. The past work of Christ. Look at what it says in verse 32. Here he's in reference to God the Father. God the Father did not even spare His own Son in reference to Jesus. But notice this but offered Him up for us all, how will He, God, not also with Christ, grant us everything? The first piece of the puzzle to the past work of Christ that helps us understand how much God loves us is this. God gave His own Son for us. Let that sink deep into your soul. God the Father gave His only begotten Son for you. I need you to know this morning, whatever your past has been and wherever you are presently, whether you're at the worst of times or the best of times, God has already given His absolute best by giving you His Son, Jesus Christ. And if God would not hold back His only begotten Son, then how will He refuse you to give you everything you need to change your life and receive eternal life? And the answer is this, He won't refuse you. Paul then has to ask another question. He wants to tease it out a little bit more. Look at verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. What Paul is saying here is on judgment day, who's going to come and accuse believers of sin on judgment day? And Paul's emphatic answer is, there will be no one to accuse believers on judgment day. Why? Number one, God chose us. Ladies and gentlemen, God chose you before you even chose Him. But then the other part, notice what happens. It says, God is the one who justifies us. That word justify is jam-packed. It means when we're in the divine courthouse on judgment day, God slams that gavel down with our sinful record and declares us not guilty. Now how, is, how are we free from sin? How are we free from all the things that God hates and yet we've participated with them in our minds, our hearts, our mouths, and our lives? How could He do that? 
Because he justified us, and here's what happens. The faithful obedience of Jesus Christ, his one and only son, his perfect record by sheer grace as a gift, God gives it to all who believe. You become the righteousness of Christ in God. And so it says this, God made you right with God. He justifies you. Who dare brings an accusation against you on judgment day when God has made you right? Paul's not finished yet. Let's look at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Now here's what he's asking about condemns. Who on judgment day would punish believers for their sins for eternity? Who would condemn them? And listen to his answer because it gives us part two about this puzzle. Christ Jesus is the one who died. The second piece to this part about how God loves us is that Christ died for us. Now let that sink in. Christ died for us. Catch what I just said. Jesus Christ was given. He came to this earth, lived a sinless, perfectly obedient life to God, and He did not hold that back to Himself, but instead, this is what He did. He went to Calvary 2,000 years ago and died on a bloody cross. Why would He do that? If he was not guilty, why would he do that if he was innocent? Why would he do that if he was perfect? Because here's what was happening. History tells you that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. What the Bible tells us is the significance of it. Jesus Christ was dying for your sins. On the cross, Jesus took your sin from off your shoulders and placed it on Him. He took your condemnation. He took your sentence that should be passed. You should be eternally separated from God. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hung on the cross, looked up into the heavens and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that you can be forgiven. Jesus was condemned to die so that we can be accepted by God and receive eternal life. And y'all, I want you to know, when he got done, Jesus says, it is finished. He died for you. Can anybody punish you on judgment day? Jesus has already taken your punishment. But there's more. Look at what the rest of verse 34 says. But even more. Can we just say that? Even more. God has raised him. Jesus also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Please get this. If Jesus died 2,000 years ago on a cross... And three days later, there is no resurrection. Please understand this. He's just a mere mortal. He's just a man. He's just a sinner like you and I. But even more, if he really is the Son of God, if he really did appease the wrath of God and he took your sins and he took the punishment for your sin and God's justice was satisfied and God raised him from the dead, then everything that happened is true. 
It's true, ladies and gentlemen. It's all true. Christ's resurrection is the evidence that in Christ, God loves you and He's forgiven you. Christ's death paid our sin debt in full and the resurrection is proof of our purchase for eternity. But there's more. He's not only been raised, it said this, where is he now? Where does it say? Look at the text. He's at the right hand of God. Now the right hand of God is God's strong hand. It doesn't look like my arm, by the way. But it's his strong, saving, administrative, authoritative hand. If you want to get to God, you've got to go through Jesus. And if God wants to get through you, he goes through Jesus. Jesus alone has sole authority to forgive sin and give eternal life. He's at the right hand of God the Father. Y'all guess what? There's more. <laughs> it says, and he is interceding for us. Can you hear it? Oh, I can hear it this morning. Jesus is praying for me by name. And he's praying for you by name. And he's praying for Mount Carmel by name. And the churches everywhere. And lost people everywhere. He stands at the right hand of God as our mediator. Coming on our behalf to God and God's behalf to us. I need you to see part three to this puzzle. Is Christ was raised, positioned, and is praying for us. Christ was raised for us. He is positioned for us. We preach forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus' name only. If you'll despise and turn from your sin and trust Christ only, you can be saved. And know right now, I love this whole idea, is that God would pray for you. Jesus would pray for you by name, and you may never have even heard His name. Ladies and gentlemen, our God is for us. But you know what? Paul's not done yet. So he looks at the past work of Christ, and that's one half to the answer to the question of how do we know God loves us. But there's another half. The second thing that he wants us to do is he wants us to look to the present love of Christ. The present love of Christ. Look at what it says in verse 35. He asked that soul ulcer question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? There's been times in my life, and I know there's had to been times in your life where you scratch to your head and go, God, do you really love me? God, have I done something to offend you? Is there this huge distance or gap between me and you? Do you not care for me anymore? Have you abandoned me? Have you forsaken me? And Paul right here gives us seven things that he personally has experienced. And I just want to, in my sanctified imagination, want to think about that maybe as Paul experienced these things, he probably looked up and went, is he really still for me? Does he really still love me? Look at the list. The very first thing is, can affliction separate us from the love of Christ? Affliction has to do with external adversities. These are outside pressures pushing in. 
Some of you right now, you are under immense pressure at your job, in your marriage, with your children. It's all those things I listed at the beginning of the sermon. You feel the pressure on the outside pushing down on you. And Paul goes, I wonder if that's any indication that God in Christ doesn't love me anymore. The second one is distress. Can distress prove that there's distance between me and Christ. Distress isn't pressure from the outside, it's pressure from the inside. It's anxiety, worry, stress, and I've been through those things. Where some of you right now, everything around you is going great, circumstances are good, but on the inside, you're in a narrow place. You feel like there's nowhere to turn. And you wonder, does God love me? The other one, persecution. Can persecution, maybe Paul thought this, here I am spending my life standing up for you, Jesus, and yet people ignore me, they insult me, and they injure me. Maybe you've turned your back on me. Maybe I've been too good to you, and you haven't paid it in con. He keeps moving forward, maybe famine. You've gone without food, living paycheck to paycheck, trying to put food on the table for your family. Is that a sign or an indication that God in Christ doesn't love you? Nakedness. You don't have the clothes you should wear. Or you've been in immense heat or immense cold. And you go, I need something better than what I got on. Is this a sign or an indication that God in Christ doesn't love you? He says, danger. This is being exposed to severe risk. This is the times when Paul would say, I've been shipwrecked three times. Ladies and gentlemen, think about it. You get shipwrecked once, right? Like, ah, maybe an accident. Get shipwrecked twice. Maybe like, I don't need to use that boat anymore. You get shipwrecked three times. You're questioning the love of God. And then he says, sword. To put it in our vernacular, to have the gun pointed in your face. To be killed. Ultimately, Paul's in reference to martyrdom to have his head severed for the cause of Christ. How could God let this go on? Paul gives us a little bit of an explanation. How could a believer who knows that God loves him experience these seven things? Look at what it says in verse 36. As it is written, he's going to quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 44, 22. He says, because of you, God... We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Here's what's happening. Let me give some of you, I'm going to pull back the curtain and explain just a little bit of why God may be allowing certain things to happen in your life. God is patient towards sinners who have yet to repent of their sins and trust Him as, as, as uh, their Savior. Now here's what's interesting. is In the meantime, those sinners can abuse God's patience and afflict Christians, people who are God's people. And so some of the things that go on in our life, some of the suffering that happens, God permits it so that it can be a witness to those who've not yet come to Him. But can you think about that for a minute? In some ways, let's just accept it for a minute. Isn't it amazing that God will use us who love Him to reach people who don't love Him? He goes, for your sake, we're being led to the slaughter. These people don't love you, God, and yet you would do this to those who do love you? So what's Paul's answer? Are any of the things that you're going through a sign or indication 
that Christ doesn't love you as much as he once did. Look at verse 37. Say that first word with me. No. No, Paul says. No, nothing disproves the love of God in Christ. Write it down. Nothing disproves God's love for us. Nothing. In fact, notice what Paul goes on to say. In all these things, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who saved us. Now we're bad to read that real quick and we interpret that verse to say this. Here's what happens. We're more than conquerors, literally. We are super conquerors or super victors and here's what God does. Here's how I know God loves me. He turns my troubles and He makes me awesome. He takes my anxiety and completely removes it and I become carefree. I'll never know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. I'll always wear the best suits and the best clothing. I'll never have to step out in faith or take a risk. I'll never experience persecution or martyrdom. In fact, Paul should have had this kind of victor mentality that he'll one day be emperor. Why? Because he's a super conqueror. That's not what that verse says. Please notice this. He says, in the middle of them. In the middle. While you're going through them, whether you feel it or not, while you're going through them and you may not see the victory, brand it on your chest. You are a super victor in Christ. You are. And the problem is this. We, lift, we let our gaze get too low. What Paul tells us, we need to lift our gaze up a little bit. See, we put too many hopes and ambitions in this earth, and we need to have eternal hopes and ambitions. I read this statement, and it's changed my perspective. God wants what we want if we knew what He knew. God wants what we want if we knew what He knew. John Chrysostom, he was a great preacher from the early church, was brought before the Roman emperor. The emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me. This is my father's world. I'll kill you, said the emperor. No, you cannot. My life is hid with Christ and God. I'll take away your treasures. No, you cannot. My treasure is in heaven and my heart's there also. I'll drive you away from man and you'll have no friend. Well, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. And Chrysostom said, I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. When we trust in Christ's love for us, we become super victors. And what's a super victor? It means this, no matter what comes, we realize that we have already overcome. No matter what comes, we realize we have already overcome. Let's look at Paul's final conclusion in verse 38. He says, for I am persuaded... I've become convinced of one thing. And then he bunches all of it together. He's going to talk about the totality of life and the universe. 
He says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's take those pairs as it goes down. Notice this, death or life. I want you to think about what Paul's saying in this context. He's saying this, I don't have to live to know that God loves me. Think about that. If I drew my last breath today, I can know God loves me. He says angels or rulers. Rulers is Paul's ways of talking about demons, demonic forces. Think of it, think of it this way. If you had a triple hedge of protection from many guardian angels, or if all of hell's forces were against you, neither one would be an indication of God's love for you. That's not the sign. He talks about present or future. If you're experiencing misfortune now and misfortune later, not a sign of God's love. If you're experiencing success now and success later, not a sign of God's love. If you're experiencing success now and misfortune later, not a sign of God's love. If you're experiencing success now or misfortune or misfortune or success, not a sign of God's love. Not things present or things future. Those are not indicative of whether God loves you. He says powers again. He's emphasizing the demonic, the satanic. Sometimes in your Christian walk, it'll feel like Satan put your name up on the game board, game board circled it, and made you target number one. And he goes, that's not an indication of whether God loves me or not. He says height nor depth. A lot of debate over this. Astrological signs that determine somebody's fate. Is it the heights of heaven or the pits of hell? At a minimum, it means this. Whether you're on the mountaintop of health and wealth, splendor and recognition, or if you're in the low valley of poverty, sickness, ridicule, and embarrassment, neither one is an indication of God's love for you. And then Paul finally puts it all in its totality. He says, not a single created thing, not a single created thing proves whether or not God loves me. Think about this. Can you catch this? There's only one being that's uncreated in all that's in existence. Who is that? Say it. God. God has no beginning. He has no end. He's always existed and always will. And I want you to see this. I can see this. Paul draws a line in the sand. And on one side, there's everything there is in the physical and spiritual universe. And he says, if all of that turned against me, and the God of the universe was on my side, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Nothing disproves God's love for you. So let's put these two together. Please catch it. Put it together. The past work of Christ, His coming, His death, His resurrection, His exalted position, Him interceding and praying for you, that demonstrates the love of God. But even this, the present love of Christ, even in the midst of the worst circumstances, are no indication of God's love. And here's what we can take together, is that the past 
work of Christ proves the present love of Christ. Let me put it even more simply. Do you want me to tell you how you can know that God loves you? The proof of God's love is a bloody cross and an empty tomb. That's all you need to know. No matter what's going on in your life, we hearken back 2,000 years and you ask yourself two questions. One, did Christ die for you? Yes. Did he get up on that third day? Then he loves you. He is not holding anything back from you. And when you come to believe that, it will change your life and it will change your eternal destination. Brennan Manning, the author of the Ragamuffin Gospel, said this. He was utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, God would ask each of us just one and only one question. Did you believe that I loved you? Did you believe that I loved you? Now please understand this. We, we like to think there's two kinds of belief. One being mental assent, like, duh, God loves everybody. That's not what Manning's saying here. That's not what the Bible asks us to believe. Think about it. Back in that day and age, everybody believed in some kind of God. We're not asking for a generic belief in God's love. We're saying this, because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave, do you trust in your heart that he loves you? Do you actually go? We said this before. Hey, his death and resurrection is history. When you believe that it was for you, it becomes salvation. Do you trust in your heart? I'm asking you. Do you trust in your heart this morning that the God of the universe in Christ proved once and for all he loves you, he is wild about you? Manning would go on to say this. God knows your whole life story. He knows every skeleton in your closet. He knows every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, and degraded love that has darkened your past. Right now, He knows your shallow faith. He knows your, I believe, may help my unbelief. He knows your feeble prayer life, that you only pray to Him when times are bad. He knows your inconsistent discipleship, whether you're in or whether you're out. And here's what he does. He dares you, God dares you to trust that he loves you just as you are and not as you should be. Why? Because none of us will ever be as we should be. Did you catch that? None of us will ever, there'll never come the day when we present ourselves before God and go, I'm good, ain't I? And he goes, you know what? I do love you. <laughs> no, when we, hey, his love's not based on your performance and your past, whether good or bad. God is good and God is love and he's already proven it. And your circumstances, no matter what you're going through, is no indication of whether Christ loves you or not. Get this deep in your soul this Easter morning. The proof of God's love is a bloody cross and an empty tomb. My question to you is this. Do you trust 
that he loves you. I want to challenge you right now to tell him that you trust that he loves you. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. This is not a time to sleep. This is the most serious, somber moment as we reflect on our spiritual lives and what may echo through eternity because of what we decide to do right now. Prayer is the voice of trust. Prayer gives sound to what we believe in our heart. And here's what I want to challenge you today. If you've never turned from your sin, if you've never acknowledged that you're a sinner, that, let me say this, without Christ, you are accused of sin. Without Christ, you will stand in judgment and be punished for eternity for your sins. But today you see God loves you. He gave His only Son. He died for you, was raised for you, is praying for you right now. God hears our thoughts and whispers. And if you're ready to trust that God loves you, I'm going to lead you in a prayer that expresses that belief. But please catch this. Sincere belief happens in the heart. If you just repeat this prayer because I'm repeating it, you might as well repeat your favorite movie line to God. It would make no difference. But if you today have come to believe in your heart and trust that God loves you in Christ, with every head bowed, every eye closed, silently to Jesus, will you pray this? Say, Dear God, I am a sinner, and I deserve judgment, but I believe you love me, that you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, for me, that he shed his blood and died for my sins. I believe that you raised him from the dead, and you hear my prayer now. Please forgive me. Come into my life and give me eternal life. I give my life to you. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.